America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Italy, an American ally on Europe's southern frontier. Our guest is Mariangela Zappia, permanent representative of Italy to the United Nations in New York. Prior to her current appointment, Ambassador Zappia was diplomatic advisor and G7 through G20 Sherpa to Prime Minister Paolo Gentiloni, the equivalent of the U.S. National Security Advisor. She has been the first woman in her country to hold this position, as well as the first woman ambassador of Italy to NATO and the UN. Ambassador Zappia brings an invaluable perspective on Italian and European affairs, as well as deep experience coping with difficult challenges and fostering international cooperation at the highest level. Italy and America have deep cultural and historical ties dating back to the expedition of Christopher Columbus. Nearly 18 million Americans are of Italian descent. Italy is renowned globally for its history, art, science, and culture. Italy borders France, Switzerland, Austria, and Slovenia, and has 8,300 kilometers of coastline. The reach of ancient Rome extended far beyond those borders and across four seas. After the fall of Rome in 476 AD, Italy remained fragmented in numerous city-states that drove the Italian Renaissance. In the 19th century, the movement for Italian unification culminated in the establishment of the Kingdom of Italy. In World War I, Italy joined the Entente with France and Britain. But in the 1930s, Italy's fascist regime of Benito Mussolini led Italy into World War II with Axis powers Germany and Japan. The regime was toppled in 1943, and Italian resistance fought alongside allies to free Italy from foreign occupation. In 1946, Italy became a republic, and in 1948, it adopted its present constitution. After the war, Italy became a close American ally, joining NATO when it was founded in 1949. Italy is also a founding member of the European Union and has been a staunch advocate of European integration. Its foreign policy is rooted in international cooperation and dialogue. Italy has been a vital partner on numerous humanitarian, peacekeeping, law enforcement, and military operations, from Afghanistan to Lebanon to Niger. Italy is central to conflicts and strategic competitions across the expanded Mediterranean, the Sahel, and the Horn of Africa. Italy is a primary entry point into Europe for refugees and migrants, fleeing hardship and political instability in the Middle East and Africa. We welcome Ambassador Zappia as Europe emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic and economic recession to discuss issues that predated the pandemic, including jihadist terrorism, mass migration, 
the rise of nationalism and Euroscepticism, and increasing tensions with China and Russia. Mary Angela, welcome to Battlegrounds. Uh, I would like to begin by telling you what, what a pleasure it was to serve with you when we were both national security advisors and how much I appreciated in particular your kind hospitality, especially in Taromina at the G7 in 2017. I don't know if you noticed that I'm wearing the tie that you gave me to commemorate that occasion. Okay. And, and of course, we had a great time with our, with our fellow national security advisors in that, in that small club of ours. But it is wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of Battlegrounds. Thank you very much, and uh, HR is really, really a pleasure to uh, to see you again. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me to to this conversation. And and indeed, you know, battlegrounds is a is a strong title, and it's true that sometimes diplomacy too looks like uh, a battleground. Um, and I have to say, right now, it looks really like a, like a battleground where we're all uh, trying to fight a a really uh, insidious, uh, invisible enemy, which is this this virus. But it's really a pleasure to be to be back to some conversation with you, and I'm looking forward to uh, to the opportunity to to exchange views uh, in such an interesting time with you. And Taormina, it was a beautiful it was a beautiful occasion uh, indeed. Uh, you know, it was also um, it was the first G7 for for this administration, for this U.S. administration, for President Trump. We were all very curious of this new administration, and here we are four years later. So it's uh, really a pleasure to, uh, to, to have this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Well, th thank you for making the time, Mary Angela. And I know that our, our viewers are looking forward to hearing your perspective on the challenges and, and opportunities we, we face. And I, I thought we might begin uh, you know, across the Mediterranean uh, from you, from Italy, uh, in Libya. I know it's an area that we spoke about often. Italy has, has paid a price for instability there as, as a nine year long war has generated refugees and made Libya a, a transit point for those fleeing violence in the, in the G5 Sahel region of, of Africa, where there are over 3 million refugees, uh, internally displaced people who are, who are at tremendous risk. And so I, I, what can you tell our viewers about this? Why should not only see instability in Libya and, and the Sahel, well, we start with a, a very important area for Italy, uh, you know, the, the geostrategic relevance of the Mediterranean for Italy is, um, is clear. And the situation in Libya especially um, is a national priority for us. Um, and, and it's very easy to understand why uh, geography, history, culture makes the Mediterranean this crossroad uh, and the beacon of civilization, where, where Italy is naturally projected, uh, physically projected. At the same time, the Mediterranean has always been at the center of a much larger geopolitical contest, where interests of great powers converge, trends and threats uh, originating from a broader arch are, are reflected and, and in a way also amplified. Um, Italy has always approached this concept of the enlarged Mediterranean as a central pillar of its foreign policy and uh, projection. Uh, and indeed, if you look at our commitment to the stabilization of Iraq, for instance, uh, in order to defeat ISIS, or our presence in Afghanistan uh, as a security provider, you will understand why. To us, um, these are not faraway places disconnected to the developments in our neighborhood. 
uh, in 2015, uh, ISIS reached the shores of Sirte, which is in Libya, uh, on the Mediterranean, and declared it would march uh, to Rome. That same year, the Islamic State began to consolidate its presence in Afghanistan through bloody attacks uh, and killings. Uh, so this helped trigger a mass wave of migration towards Europe and, and, and of course, towards Italy, since we are really the border of Europe. Um, but uh, there are also other effects, I would say second and third order effects on, on, on the crisis in, uh, in the Mediterranean region. Um, and these are uh, of a magnitude in a way that we could not imagine until now. So what we see today um, in terms of the, the institutional weakness in Libya have not only brought uh, terrible violence inside the country, but they've also led us to, to the brink of regional war. Uh, this conflict is a zero-sum game between competing political, social, religious vision uh, for the whole region. Uh, but the regional powers behind these competing visions have no realistic chance of exercising a, a, a cultural or, or, or a political hegemony by themselves, uh, and they know it. Uh, and this creates a, a sort of geopolitical vacuum and amplifies the risk of global powers becoming involved. Uh, this is why the Libyan conflict is so dangerous and certainly a reason for the, the U.S. to care uh, about what happens there. Uh, you know, Italy is not um, a great power. Uh, we are a great country, which is well acquainted by history and, and, and geography with the difficult task of building a, a, a Mediterranean order uh, predicated on, on seeking convergence of interest. Uh, not conflict and no zero game, uh, zero sum game. Um, this is why I would say um, one of the hallmarks of our foreign policy is the ability and the willingness to engage in dialogue with everybody. Sometimes we are criticized for this. Uh, there, there is a sort of criticism. Where is Italy going? Why is Italy uh, talking to this and that? Uh, and this happens inside and outside Italy. But we have um, very little to gain, uh, I would say, from being less open to dialogue, uh, even in difficult circumstances such as uh, the Libyan conflict or uh, what we're seeing today in the Eastern Mediterranean, for, in for instance. So Dialogue is for us a strategic necessity. Uh, it's a smart thing to do uh, anyway, but it's also a strategic necessity because it's a, it's a reflection uh, of this complex geopolitical environment we, uh, we have to live in. Uh, and also the acknowledgement of, of the huge potential uh, benefits of a cooperative approach in, uh, in the Mediterranean. Mary Angela, though it, it seems like it seems like it's anything but cooperative these days, right? Of course, this was a war that was supposed to be easy, right? Fast, cheap, mm -hmm. efficient, support the rebels, get rid of Gaddafi, and remember the whole, you know, you know, bombs without boots approach to it. And now we're in the ninth year of the conflict. It's getting more and more complicated. You have you have the Turks and the Gutteries supporting you know, the government of national court in, in, in the capital. Then you have you know, you have the Egyptians and the, the Russians and the Emiratis supporting Haftar. You have these Mizratan militias that are that are switching sides, as you mentioned. 
terrorist organizations, they take advantage of that. And they're, they're creating a humanitarian crisis. Of course, in 10,000 uh, have died you know, trying to transit the Mediterranean to escape the hell that's been uh, created there. And, and, uh, and, and at least 900 of those have been children, right? So there's a humanitarian aspect. So I, I know that we have to all be engaged on it, but it doesn't seem like it's getting much done. What can you say to Americans? What's feasible for, for, the, for America, the U.S. and other, I mean, the, the U.S., uh, Italy and other partners to work together to begin to, to make a difference and to, to end this violence and instability there? Well, the first thing I, I'd like to say, HR, is that um, we need to invest in, uh, in this peace process that is going on. Um, European partners were very much engaged. Uh, I'm talking about this Berlin process. Is a process to make the space for Libyan really to, uh, uh, to find um, an agreement. And in these days, I have to say, there are some positive signals. Um, there is a ceasefire in place. Um, there are uh, a lot of diplomatic uh, efforts going on. And I think uh, we have all of us together, we are talking a lot with Washington also on, on this, all of us together really push the parties to uh, engage uh, in, uh, in this political process. So there is a window of hope uh, in Libya right now. We are, you said it very, very clearly, uh, this pose also a huge challenge in, term, in terms of humanitarian crisis. We are also very much engaged with uh, UNHCR, IOM, uh, uh, to really uh, alleviate the suffering of refugee, refugees, IDPs, and, and migrants in Libya. This is also a, a, a very important dimension that, that we have to uh, uh, take into consideration. But, uh, you know, these are really um, uh, very critical days for Libya. There will be, by the way, very soon also um, a discussion in the Security Council to renew the mandate of the uh, UN uh, operation in Libya. I think we all have to really push hard because Libya, you know, Libya is a difficult situation, but is at the core or of an even more difficult and, and challenging environment. And uh, you you mentioned uh, the Sahel, uh, the terrorist threat there. This is something that really concerns all of us. It's not only about Europe, which is very close, and the European Union and Italy really uh, the closest. Uh, to that area. In that area, uh, we all um, are risking our national security, uh, even, even, even for the US is so far. Uh, but what's happening in that area of the world is really critical for all of us. So um, I think we have to keep engaging as, as we have done uh, up to now. Uh, Italy is very much engaged also uh, with, with people on the ground, we, we participate in, uh, in, uh, in this force to support the G5 Sahel. Uh, we are in Mali, we are in Niger, we are in Somalia. Uh, as I was saying, this has to be seen as an arch of instability, which is really uh, challenging, not only Africa, because it's in Africa and Europe, because, because it's close. But you know what's happening there is lawlessness, is uh, uh, really the, the, the failing of states. 
and, and the space really for uh, terrorism and all sorts of traffic and, and uh, criminality to, uh, to really uh, win the ground. And, you know, if we go back to what we did together in 2015 with the, with the coalition, for instance, which is really, to me, one of the most um, successful examples of how we can work together, uh, not only among very close allies as we are in, in the NATO alliance, uh, uh, but also, you know, the concept of an enlarged partnership to fight a common enemy. I think really the coalition was one of the last examples that it is possible to work together when you identify clearly which is the objective and, and how to, uh, to fight it. Uh, I think we don't have to, um, to lift the pressure. The, this remains the big challenge, um, Again, we, 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 we have to, to continue being present in the area. And, uh, and of course, we, we all are grateful also for, for the U.S. to, uh, to take, uh, you know, to take attention to, uh, to the area. It's far. Libya was also difficult internally because of the tragedy that happened there, the loss of life. Um, but really, Libya is not only about Libya. It's about uh, our, our national security. Mary Angela, you're, you're there in New York, and you know that Americans are deeply skeptical about sustained military operations abroad these days. I think it's likely, right, that, that COVID will make us even more introspective and, and suspicious or doubtful about really opportunities to, to change or affect change in these very complicated environments. Uh, but, but of course, the, the best way to do that is to share the burden, right, to share the burden uh, multinationally with like-minded partners like Italy and, and other uh, members of the EU and and NATO, um, and then also to, to try to make international organizations work more effectively. And you probably know because you're right there at the UN, there's a deep skepticism in the US these days also about international organizations. The, probably the World Health Organization is at the top of that list. You spent your career really trying to make these multilateral organizations work effectively. What, what advice do you have for Americans? What, what is the value of international organizations? How should we regard them? And what, could, what can America do to, to help make them more effective and more aligned maybe uh, with, with American interests? Yeah, uh, well, you, you um, very cl clearly described um, the challenge of, of what we are living right, right now. So we, we work uh, at the core of, of multilateralism in the UN and this in the UN that we see this confrontation going on. Um, if you, if you want the, 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 the more plastic example, the more evident example of this uh, um, divide uh, was the inability of the Security Council for three months, three months and a half to come up with a very simple one page resolution that says the coronavirus is a, a threat to uh, peace and security uh, and by the way, let's call for a ceasefire for 90 days and, uh, and follow, follow the, the, the appeal of the Secretary General on that. It was really uh, disheartening to see how difficult that was. In the end, yes, there was a resolution, but, but in the meantime, the, the world was fighting against an enemy that is a common enemy. And that I, I, was, I was saying before, um, this is, 
it should be a no-brainer that that you know we have this virus is we are all hit very hard and we should cooperate to uh, to fight it. Uh, so what I what I think I the message that I would like to give is that we we are very conscious that this um, international architecture needs a lot of fixing. Um, we are very conscious that there are organizations that are not uh, delivery on their mandate as we would like and, and as we, we thought they would have uh, done. Um, the, you mentioned the, the WHO and of course the WHO was at the core and is still at the core of, uh, of, of this um, um, different way of, of seeing how the multilateral system should be fixed or not. My way and I think the, the way the Europeans see uh, how to fix this is to engage. So our way is really to, to stay inside and to change from inside and to and, and to try to make all these organizations more, more efficient and, and, and make them deliver on their mandate. So for us, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't judge the reasons. Uh, it's, it's far from me, uh, you know, to, to wanting to, to, to give a, a, a judgment of that. But it's, uh, for me, um, I, I, I would much prefer uh, to have the U.S., uh, you know, staying in uh, in uh, in this organization and helping us uh, to to change them, but you know, I'm I'm hopeful. Um, I think there are moments in international relation where maybe this conflict becomes um, too difficult to to handle, and and we have to be patient. Uh, I'm sure that we can go back to work together to fix this international architecture. But we need it. <laughs> and if there is a moment when you really need all this, is now. Uh, in the end, the UN is really the room where, where you know, things happen, um, where, where discussion happens, where disagreement happens. But um, we are very lucky that these disagreements happen in those rooms uh, and not elsewhere. So this is really um, where the fate of a through multilateralist, uh, lateralist as I am, um, is uh, is uh, is clearly um, expressed. Uh, we need this. We need to work from inside, uh, and and we need it to to uh, to work for us. Um, maybe another thing that I want to say is that you know this virus. Um, to me, um, in a way, is um, it was like a big uh, magnifier. Is a big magnifier. There were already divides. Uh, there, there were already fracture, um, and, and and everything became uh, stronger, bigger, uh, more clear. Um, and and there is another thing that, as a result, we we can see very very clearly is that um, no one can, can be alone in, uh, in the fight against this virus. There, are no, uh, there is no going solo. There are no national solution to that. We are all so connected. Uh, you know, the virus travels. The virus 
knows no border. You can, yes, you can close down, you can, but the virus is a virus. And, and if you don't have that international cooperation, we're all loser. And, and uh, we are as strong as the, the one who's uh, the weakest. So we want the weakest one to become strong because we all need that. Uh, I don't know if this makes sense, but uh, this I, is really you, it makes, it makes the fate. Right. You know, I think, Mary Angela, you know, I think in the 90s, after the end of the Cold War, everybody thought there's just like a prize for membership in international organizations, right? You had all this, you know, kind of heady language, like global governance. And I think we kind of, we just kind of forgot that we have to compete within international organizations to advance our, our interests, because some countries, unfortunately, aren't there to cooperate. They're actually there to undermine, oftentimes, the very purpose of those organizations. And and so I think you're making a strong case for engagement and, and competition, as well as cooperation within international organizations. And I, I know you spent a lot of time at NATO and, and strengthening the alliance there. And Italy, of course, a charter member of NATO. And I've had the great privilege of serving alongside great Italian soldiers in many places in the world, a principal among them in, in, in Af Afghanistan. And I wonder if you might just give us your thoughts on the state of NATO and, and maybe one of the problem members even in, in NATO these days, uh, if you don't mind talking about Turkey and how Turkey is engaged in a, in a range of, of actions and, and policies uh, that cut against its NATO allies. And, and you, you mentioned how Italy is, is always concerned about, about the greater or the large Mediterranean area. In the Eastern Mediterranean, Turkey's getting very aggressive there. I mentioned the role in, in Libya, but this is competition over natural resources and oil. Uh, Greece and, and, and France are conducting naval patrols to counter their NATO ally, Turkey. Could you offer some thoughts about NATO broadly maybe, but then also in particular, Turkey and, and what might be a, a, way ahead, a way ahead to maybe pull you know, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan you know, back uh, toward the NATO alliance and, and away from the direction he's headed now? So that's a, a very difficult question to, to, to answer. NATO, um, well, NATO for, for Italy is really, uh, you know, the pillar together with the European Union of our foreign policy is really where we find ourselves in, uh, in our principles, um, in, uh, in, in what we believe in. Um, so it's um, for us, NATO remain and the transatlantic relation remain really um, where, where we invest uh, in our future for, our, for, for, for the future generations. Is, uh, uh, so we, when we see something like uh, what's happening in, in these days with two NATO allies, uh, in such a um, hard situation, um, we our first reflex is to protect what we have, because what what we have uh, this transatlantic alliance uh, is really the core of what we are. So, for us, what we we want uh, and what we are doing uh, through also the European Union uh, is really to push uh, for 
much diplomacy uh, to push for, um, you know, diffusing the tension. Um, you, you said it right. This is a, a tension that arises mainly from, from uh, energy sources, control of energy sources, uh, present and future. Um, but this is the Mediterranean. <laughs> and the Mediterranean is, is big, but it's not big. It's a small sea in the end compared to, uh, to, to the big oceans. Uh, but, you know, we are all, um, we are all there. Um, so what is a competition on, on energy resources and the control of those energy resources, in our view, should be cooperation in, uh, in exploiting that resources and, uh, and make them available for all in the Mediterranean. Um, I know that this can, can, can look like a little bit, uh, you know, idealistic, um, but that's it. Uh, and, and, and frankly, for Italy, um, again, simply, you know, for the, for, for the reason that, that are so evident, if you look at, at, the, at the map and see where Italy is, to see two NATO allies, by the way, one also uh, member of the European Union as we are, um, um, you know, having such, such strong tensions, um, is not good and, and we will do whatever we can to, to really bring them back to, first of all, you know, um, observing international law uh, and, and, and then go back to uh, discussing uh, together how, how to, to solve that tension. Um, I think there is another, maybe another thing that I want to say, you know, we are talking about the South of the alliance, the south part of the alliance. And we have been, Italy has been arguing for years that the alliance uh, uh, should really look very carefully also to the challenges that, that are coming from the south. Um, of course, we have a big challenge on, on the east flank of, of the alliance, um, and that's very clear. But for the reason we were discussing before, uh, because of what's happening uh, in in uh, in Africa, in the Sahel, uh, in the northern shore of Africa, NATO also need to look at those um, at those threats that, that are coming from that region. And so, the fact that two uh, main uh, uh, allies of the south of the alliance are now busy in fighting each other uh, detract in a way also from the effort that the alliance should put in, uh, in looking outside the alliance and the threat that are coming uh, from outside. Um, so th that's also something that I, I feel very, very strongly about. Um, yeah. Lastly, you mentioned, um, you mentioned, uh, I think, uh, you know, the investment that, that, that we want to, uh, to do in the alliance and, and, um, uh, we have been in talks, uh, not only with with administration but also with the uh, with, uh, with the Obama administration before about how the the, the U.S. feel that that uh, European allies should contribute more, should should really, and we are in the process of really, uh, you know, uh, maintaining our engagements uh, from the from the Wales summit, uh, and and uh, you know we are all of us trying to 
to really uh, stick to those engagements and uh, reinforce our... This is, the, this our, is the pledge for our viewers that member states of NATO would yes. invest 2% of their gross domestic product into defense. Yes. But we want that 2% to be to be for the alliance uh, itself. And, and, uh, and so I think it's a fair... Um, it's a fair request. Um, I think our way of, of uh, seeing this is also how we contribute to, to the alliance. Uh, so it's not only a question of money, it's a question of you know, the engagement that you have really on the operations. And, and uh, in the case of Italy, this engagement is massive. Uh, we are really everywhere the alliance is. Uh, we, we are we have the command of K4, uh, which is a very important operation in the Balkans that still um, maintains stability in that region. Uh, and of course, then we are in Unifil in Lebanon. So we, even if that, these are not properly, Unifil is not properly a NATO operation, is a UN operation. But what I, I want to say is that we see all these, um, you know, very much linked uh, and this is the uh, investment that Italy is putting to its benefit and the benefit of, of our allies in, uh, in area that are really insecure, unstable. Um, we are a big security provider for all. So we, we think that our engagement is not only you know, our quota, but also what we put really concretely in, uh, in those operations. You know, Mary Angela. Sometimes these these engagements and, and commitments, I think, are are helpful just because they help ensure a situation doesn't get worse. Right? And I think when you look at some of these areas, uh, the the Sahel area, uh, the Middle East broadly, Lebanon even now, just when you think it can't get any worse, actually, yeah, actually can get worse. And and I know that you've seen a, a lot of the you know the effects of of the violence uh, in, in the form of, of refugees making it to your shores in Italy. I know that that's put a strain on, on Italy economically, but also to a certain extent socially and politically as well. I know you were just you were just back in Italy. Could you maybe describe how you saw the dynamics there in Italy associated with the political dynamics, the rise of nationalism, uh, and, and your view of, of how well you think Italy and Europe are positioned now to emerge from the COVID-19 crisis Hopefully, hopefully stronger. Yes. Um, first of all, the first part of your, of your question about you know this this pressure, massive pressure that was put on 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 Italy first, but also on other European countries. But of course, Italy was was hit and is right now in these days because of what's happening in the Mediterranean. Again, we have we have a pressure. Um, was extremely destabilizing. Um, you know, we are the border of Europe. Uh, these are not only our borders, uh, but these are the southern border of, of the European Union. So for us, what is very important to, to understand, and, uh, and, and this is where really we put a lot of uh, political, diplomatic um, uh, pressure is that um, we have to share the responsibility because we are responsible also for these people. We cannot leave these people simply die in, in the Mediterranean waters trying to, to cross the Mediterranean. 
but it's a shared responsibility. So I think in the end, uh, while of course migration and, and flux of mixed flux, because, because this is also one, one challenge, you, you don't know who's coming on a boat. You don't know if this is a refugee or a migrant uh, or, or some, someone who's, who's escaping specific challenge and situation. You, you cannot know. Uh, so you have to, to take these people and, 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 and try to help them. At the same time, you cannot put uh, such a pressure on your social fabric. And, and this is exactly what, what's happening, but not only in Italy, it has been happening all over Europe. And, and, and maybe this started really in 2015 with the big flux of refugees from, Lib from Syria, mostly, yeah. you know, coming from, from the East and, and, and uh, putting such a pressure on Germany, for instance. And, and the very courageous, <laughs> I have to say, um, uh, you know, act by, by, by Chancellor Merkel to, to open to these people. But that had a very high political price um, because you put, you put the pressure on the society because all of a sudden uh, racism, discrimination, xenophobia, all the, you know, the old ghosts that in Europe um, in the end were very much at, at the core of, of two uh, world conflicts um, reappear. Um, it's a challenge. We have to face it together. There's no way that we can we can handle this alone. And again, you cannot just close the border. In our case, it's simply impossible. We have water all around. You you cannot. Um, and but I you know there is um, after many years of of discussions in the European Union, I think we are really close to. Um, uh, agreeing on a new uh, European Union policy on migration and asylum. And uh, I really hope that this policy will be, as we see it, uh, a way to, to share uh, among us. Um, unfortunately, I have to use this word, the, the burden of, of uh, you know, big migrations and, and refugees flows. At the same time, you know, it's very complex. You have to, to work a lot uh, to, uh, to improve the legal migration. I mean, let's not forget that migration is also a resource, a big resource. We need migrants. Uh, we need migrants simply because our demography, um, uh, you know, is, is uh, Italy is a country that is becoming old. Um, we also need workforce. And so we need that. And so we need to increase and make the legal migration possible um, and, and uh, you know, ordered. Um, it's, it's a very complex, really very complex issue. And we feel a lot about it, not only because we are, you know, uh, hit uh, in the first place, but also because we were migrants ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know the, the, the numbers, I should know, but there are millions of American of Italian origins. Uh, and, and so we know what it means to, to migrate. Uh, we know how difficult it is on one side, but we know also the hope that migration brings and, and the energy that migration can bring to, uh, to other countries. And, you know, we have Italians everywhere, uh, massively. <laughs> 
So well, my, we, my, uh, my, uh, my great grandparents, as a matter of fact, Mary really? from Italy <laughs> on my mother's side. Yeah. So it's a big issue. It's, uh, it's really one of the big challenges of our time. How Mary, to Mary Angela, can I maybe just just ask a related question now? Of course, you have to deal with 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 the, uh, the migration crisis, the refugee crisis as they come to your shores. But but of course, what what would be I think even better would be to try to address the causes, right? And to try to address this problem closer to to the to the cause. And you know, we we had on, on the last episode of, of Battlegrounds, we had Foreign Minister Atmar from uh, from Afghanistan on. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm concerned. I'll just tell you, I'm concerned about about the the American peace deal uh, with the Taliban, uh, the inter-Afghan talks. Now the release of those prisoners in Afghanistan, and of course, as you know, the 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 place from which the second highest number of refugees have come to Europe is from Afghanistan. Previously, are you concerned about about our our inability to to really sustain efforts overseas that are important? To, you know, to, to preventing uh, an, another wave of, of uh, refugees and migrants who are fleeing violence and instability? Yeah, another, another very important question. And, and listen, we have been in Afghanistan, I think, for... 19, Almost 20 years, 19 years. 19 years, years, exactly, right. 19 years. Um, it's a long investment, um, long investment, um, I mean, really a strong commitment to basically to the Afghan people because because this is what we we have tried to do. Um, of course, there was a challenge for all of us that was coming from that country, and, and, but in the end, this long-term engagement in Afghanistan is really to to be able to have a normalization of that country. So, um, I think. You know, Italy continues to to honor his commitment. We are still one of the frame of nation in uh, in the resolute support mission, which is the NATO mission, which is uh, you know s- supporting the Afghan forces with with training and and, and equipping and all that. Um, we have, I think, along all these years, paved the way for Afghanistan to, to realize a vision of peace, end of self-reliance. Really, this investment was about that. Um, now, at one point, I think we, we will have to, to see if Afghanistan can, can really walk on his, on his leg. Um, and you said it very well. Uh, this is not only about, uh, you know, military uh, presence. It is a lot about development. Uh, Afghanistan remains for Italy the first recipient of, of development cooperation. So the two things go, go together. Um, I think we have to support as much as possible um, the dialogue, the agreement that, that was reached. I. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be sincere if I wouldn't tell you that we are concerned, of course, because we are, you know, in the end, this is an agreement with, uh, with the same people that, that we were there in the first place to, to fight. Uh, but again, uh, this is part of the Afghan society. And this is part of uh, what we see as an intra-Afghan dialogue that has to happen. 
um, what we will be very careful, really, this is something that we, we, we care a lot and we feel very strongly, is not to go back on, on some of the gains uh, that we all were able to, uh, uh, in a way, to offer to, to, to the Afghan people and that the Afghan people, uh, you know, fight so, so much to, to, to gain. And I'm talking about rights, basically, human rights, uh, women rights, rights to education. Uh, we have to be very careful that, that this is not a trade-off. Um, that, that, that shouldn't happen, frankly. Yeah, I, Myself, I, I, I'm... I agree. You know, as, as President Gandhi said uh, recently, uh, he made a statement about this, which I was encouraged to see. Because right? the, the question I, I want to ask is, okay, what does power sharing with the Taliban look like? Is that mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? You know, is that, is that every other girls' school bulldozed? So I think you make an immensely important point that, that we shouldn't be a party to seeing the, the Afghan people lose what they've gained, those hard-won gains that we all fought for together uh, mm -hmm. since 2001. I think that's, that's really very, very important because, I mean, it would, it would be totally contradictory and, and really a tragedy that, that we go back to what we have, you know, so much fought all of us together with the Afghan people for, um, then, you know, uh, anyone can, can give his, his or her small contribution. Myself, I'm here, um, member of a group of friends of, uh, of the Afghan women, for instance. Um, there is a, a very, very strong Afghan ambassador here in, in the UN. She's a woman. And we will monitor we will, there's, I mean, we, we will monitor, we will be very, very careful that, um, you know, as soon as the first flag is raised, that something is not going in the right direction, uh, we will at least raise the voice. Um, and we raise the voice in the UN, which is important, it's not, it's not any place. So a lot of investment still in, in this uh, beautiful country. And let me just say a word, because I know you, you visited our troops in, uh, in Herat. Uh, they are still there. Um, myself, I visited Herat and, and Afghanistan uh, a couple of times. Uh, I have fond memories. Um, and I think I, I, I just want to say, you know, chapeau to our soldiers there. Yes. We also lost life. Uh, and, and, and this is also something that we, we, we can't forget. Uh, so the moment we we change course, uh, this is also something that we have to keep in mind. It and of course, I was easy. always I was always impressed with the professionalism, discipline, and courage of Italian soldiers, and I was also very impressed with the cuisine. Every time <laughs> I was in Iraq, right. one of my favorite places <laughs> to visit. Um, Mary Angela, I, I, I could talk to you all day. The time is flying, so I have two related questions to ask you because we're running out of time already, which I can't believe. So. We, we have not yet talked about great power competition. We've talked about related problems. I mean, I think you could say that, that Russia is in many ways creating the problems we've talked about in terms of its support for Assad and really the, the serial episodes of mass homicide in connection with the Syrian civil war and the, the great tragedy there. Of course, combined with a sustained campaign of political subversion right, against the EU to break us apart 
right? And the, to pit us against each other, I think, is Russia's game. And then, of course, China is very aggressive in different ways, uh, forms of economic aggression. And But now we're seeing more and more of this wolf warrior diplomacy. In fact, Italy was on the receiving end of it. And so what what, what advice do you have for all of us to, to be able to compete more effectively uh, against these powers that I think in the case of Russia is trying to, to drive us down. And, and I think in the case of China, trying to draw us in and, and co-opt and, and coerce us in a different way. Uh, and, then, and then isn't the best defense maybe for us to strengthen our own relationships uh, within Europe and, uh, and the transatlantic relationships? So, I mean, your thoughts broadly on the great power competition. And then what is your, you know, what is your, uh, what is your assessment uh, your prediction about will we, we will we emerge from the COVID-19 crisis, the recession? Can we emerge stronger from all this uh, in, in connection with our, our alliances, our relationships uh, really within Europe and between the United States and, and Europe and Italy in particular? Uh, that's a very um, difficult question to, um, to answer. Um, I think you know, maybe I want to start a little bit from, from, from the past and, and, and see a little bit um, the, the international relations um, as they were, you know, let's say last time I was in the UN, which, which was at the beginning of, of 2000. Um, it was a totally different world, of course. Um, there was one power, one superpower, the, the US, uh, and, and everything was quite easy here. I mean, we could really uh, tackle issues and and, uh, and and do it together and all that. And then a number of things have happened. Um, I I would say that the big the biggest vulnerable to this way of, of seeing the international relations was 2014 and, and the, the illegal annexation of, of Crimea and, and all of a sudden, you know, seeing again what can happen in Europe. Of course, in 2008, it was Georgia already. It was the first, the first sign. And, and, um, and I, think, I think that from, from that moment, um, everything was put in question again. And, and we entered the phase um, of, of competition, of uh, a totally different environment. And, and then the virus come. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really simplifying, but then the virus come and the virus come already when all these divisions were there. China raising, hugely economically expanding its influence uh, in Africa, in Asia, everywhere, putting a lot of, uh, investing a lot, in fact, in its own expansion. Um, and then you have the virus and, and, uh, and everything is even more uh, difficult and, and contentious and, uh, and fractured. Um, so, the true multilateralist that I am will tell you that we cannot go, uh, we, we cannot go continuing that way. Um, that would be destructive for, for all of us. Um, and and uh, what I think 
is that there are moments where something happened that makes things even more difficult. And I think we are in that moment, but we have to invest for the moment after, the one where um, we will be able really to, uh, uh, to, to, to start again understanding how to handle this complexity. Um, right now, what I feel is a um, sort of disorder. Uh, if you see what I want to, to, to say, um, it's, it's very difficult to, to handle these tensions. Uh, I believe it would be much easier the moment we come out of this crisis, of this uh, health crisis, which is not only an health crisis, it's an environment crisis, about diversity crisis, a social crisis, an economic crisis. Let's hope that um, we find a solution to fight this virus, and then we will have to engage. We will have to engage China and Russia. I think. Uh, I know that I, I'm, a, you know, a total uh, European Union fan, and 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 I, I I see the world through those lens. But frankly, this crisis has demonstrated that um, the EU, maybe because we are old Europe, maybe because we have that um, uh, wiseness that old people have. I don't know. <laughs> But Europe gave the right responses to the virus, and I think we are giving the, the right responses also in the way we engage with China and Russia. Um, China is an ever-growing, dynamic presence in international institutions, in the UN. China has... Um, occupied spaces that were left um, free. Uh, wherever there is a void, they, they come. Um, and they, they come because they understand that this is the best way to, to defend their own ideas and their own vision. Of, so they have a, a, a different vision of multilateralism, of, uh, but, but they, they have a different vision, but they play the same game. So we need to play that game too. Um, we have to be strong on our principle, but we cannot consider China as an enemy. Uh, and I believe in that respect, the EU, as I was saying before, is striking the right approach, I hope, we will see, but uh, which is an ambitious agenda um, of the EU-China political dialogue based on transparency, reciprocity, spanning from trade to human rights, maritime security. Um, so for the EU, China is in a way simultaneously a, a, a cooperation partner in different policy area, a negotiation partner. Let's not forget that this is a huge economic uh, uh, actor, an economic competitor and a systemic rival. So you, you put all this together and, and, and uh, you have to deal with this um, systemic rival. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there is the, the, 
there is a question of values. And I think, I think in the end, uh, we have to fight for our values. We are respected if we are fighting for our values. Um, so we cannot, we cannot compromise on, 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 on human rights, but we cannot even compromise on fair competition, for instance. Is, so there are no differences in the way we, we, uh, we feel about China. Maybe the difference is in the way we handle uh, such a big, uh, a big, big country. And, um, and for Russia, for Russia, well, a little bit the same, but, but um, Russia is a European country also. So Russia is in Europe. Um, uh, Russia, Russia is part of our not only physically of our region, but is also, you know, we, we share history, we share, we share a lot with, with Russia. And, and, and of course, what we don't like to see is a country that tries to divide us. Um, that's, really, that's really a little bit what then it is, is, is happening. And, and uh, we have to, to fight that very, very forcefully. Um, Again, with Russia, we have what we call the double track approach. We are very firm on sanctions, for instance, and, and, and I, think, I think sanctions have, have to remain until this big bonus is not, is not repaired in one way or, or the other. At the same time, we, we need to engage them. It's much more complicated. There is an energy, Discourse that we can have that, that concern Europe and, and the source of energy coming from, from, from Russia. So it's, it's, uh, it's complex, but we have to engage those countries. Mary Angela, I think what's going to be important as we emerge from this crisis is, uh, is for us to be confident, right? For us to be confident in our democratic principles, institutions, our processes, and our, our, our values. And, and I, I know I'm emerging from this conversation much more confident because I think we can draw confidence from who our friends are. And we have a great friend in Italy, a great friend in the, in the EU, and you've, and you've been done so much across your career to strengthen that relationship, our relationship. Thank you for your leadership, your vision, your time with us today. And, and so um, Ambassador Zapia, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us learn more about so many different battlegrounds that are, that are important to building a future of peace and prosperity for future generations. What a pleasure it's been to be with you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation as, as usual with you, HR. Um, very, very uh, humbled by, you know, being requested to, to participate in this program. It's a great program. And uh, yes, it's a battleground, but, uh, you know, we, we will win in the battleground. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Mary Angela. Thank, Thank you. So you. Thank you all. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.